A Texas judge has made another ruling on the Affordable Care Act. This time, it has to do with what counts as no-cost preventative care, and whether or not religious employers can object to certain aspects of that care. We'll talk about that and how long COVID could further affect the U.S. labor force. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with us is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and an economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for joining us again. You're very welcome. Happy to do it. Got a couple of different interesting topics today. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some healthcare court cases, uh, and one in particular, really, uh, regarding the Affordable Care Act and what counts as preventative care. It dates yeah, back okay. to the opinion with Justice Alito in the Hobby Lobby case from 2014. So that's coming up in the second half of the program. In the first part of the program, though, Ron, I want to talk a little bit about long COVID. Because we've talked about COVID and COVID vaccinations uh, a number of times here on the program and how, you know, we mentioned that a number of people left the workforce in part because they died from COVID-19. And that's regardless of whether or not it was considered a comorbidity or not. Those people did die from the virus and they left the workforce. Uh, A new uh, sort of study or analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation is talking about what the implications for a long COVID might be for employment and for healthcare coverage. And Ron, I guess I'll start by asking first is, is what is, um, what is really, what is long COVID? Well, long COVID is something that physicians are still figuring out. I mean, remember this is a novel virus. I mean, we, we, you know, we had to learn this on the fly first, how to, mm-hmm. you know, how to test for it and then how to treat it. And, and we've come a long way, including now oral medications and various vaccines. But now what we're trying to figure out is this, sort of scenario of what they call long COVID, which is after recovery from the virus, a a variety of fairly long lasting, maybe permanent for some people, um, issues, things like uh, loss of cognitive skill, things like general fatigue, malaise. Um, You know, some people have reported for some fairly long period of time not getting their sense of taste back. Um, So there, there appears to be a number of things that can last weeks, months, or maybe, we don't know yet, forever, that are um, side effects, if you will, of having COVID. Um, and, and we're still figuring out why it happens, why it happens to some people and not others, You know, how long some of these things will be, how serious some of them are, and, and how to deal with it. Do, do we know if long COVID is physical or mental? Um, the common belief right now is that there is definitely a physical part of long mm-hmm. COVID. Now, the reason why I say there's definitely a physical part, um, it's it's not impossible that some people are having what would be a psychosomatic reaction or a, you know, what they are, are experiencing as a real symptom to them that may be not really related to some physical or, or biological aspect. But we definitely know that there is a physical and biologic aspect of long COVID in, you know, many people. 
The data out there varies in part because of exactly what you said, that since COVID-19 was a novel virus, we're, we're dealing with it. We don't still don't know everything about it, including origins and things like long COVID. But the range is generally that uh, those that have long COVID can affect about, the range is really 10 to 33 million working age adults in the U.S. That's a significant portion of our workforce. It is. It, it is a significant portion. And then, you know, within that, what is their particular symptom or condition and, and how mm-hmm. livable is that condition? I mean, it's like I said, it's something we're still getting our hands around. And, and, and maybe we should have I should have mentioned this before when you're talking about what it is. Um, and it's thought that it relates to um, potentially some either long or permanent damage that was done by the body's immune system fighting off COVID. For example, some of the things that appear to be neurologic in in nature, um, cognitive loss or malaise or that kind of things, um, we think it is a function of the body kicking up a defensive mechanism to kill that that virus that also did some damage to either neurosynapses or proteins or things that are affecting um, brain function. Um, So, you know, if you think about that portion of the workforce potentially having, you know, a, a symptom like malaise or, or loss of cognitive function to some degree, and if that's permanent, that's significant for those people and, mm-hmm. and what happens to them. One of the things that uh, this also mentioned, uh, this particular analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which, of course, we'll have linked in the show notes as well. Uh, fewer than half of working age adults with long COVID who did who worked prior to being infected with COVID um, are working full time after they've had infection. Mm-hmm. So already we're seeing that um, people who get COVID, the people who have long COVID, people who have gotten it, don't go back to full time status uh, for seemingly a, a pretty long while. Um, what kind of effects does that have on our labor force, particularly in the in the healthcare sector? Well, it, it can have an enormous um, impact on our healthcare because these people you know, sort of are at least partially or fully removed from the workforce. Um, And if, and again, we don't have very good data on this, if long COVID is more prevalent in people in the healthcare sector, um, because, you know, they were working and potentially Mm -hmm. got um, infected prior to vaccine, et cetera, you know, that can be significant. Um, There are, and let me just put it this way, there are roughly, um, you know, a a million practicing physicians out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't take too many of them to be removed from the workforce to have a dent, especially if it's more in one specialty than another. Um, there's a, a anesthesiologist who has a, a wonderful podcast called Straight Talk MD. Um, he got COVID and he details mm-hmm. his struggles through COVID and also details the, you know, his loss of cognitive function for a while. Now, luckily for, for him, it went away after some period of time, but he talks about not being able to, you know, string together cogent thoughts and not being able to write. And even after he was COVID negative, him personally saying, I can't go back in the OR, you know, because I need to make decisions, logic decisions in that, that affect people's lives. And I can't do it till mm-hmm. I'm fully back. And, and he went through a process of getting a neuro evaluation, et cetera. So, you know, you take somebody like that who has long COVID, and even if they've only got a small reduction in cognitive ability, well, do you want them being the person who's the anesthesiologist in the org? No. Um, right. Right. So, you know, we're still figuring this out, but the impacts could be pretty dramatic. 
Do we know if vaccination uh, helps prevent, uh, we know it helps prevent severe disease. Does it help prevent long COVID as well? Um, the jury may separate, still be out on it. <laughs> no, I'm so, separate from what we know from what we believe. So sure. no, when I talk about what we know, meaning there's a definitive study out there that, you know, that compares, you know, a control group to a, we don't, we don't have that study, but everybody believes that um, vaccination definitely helps reduce the chances of long COVID with the, the logic being that um, if long COVID, and we believe this is a function of the body fighting off the virus, okay? Mm -hmm. Vaccinations definitely help you fight off the virus much quicker. So it would only logic would tend to tell you, well, if there wasn't as long a period of time or as difficult a time, the body fighting off the virus, then it would stand to reason that that would reduce your chances of getting long COVID. So I think that's pretty solid logic. Um, I think that that theory and belief is is more than likely to be accurate. But I, I'm careful about saying, you know, do we know that? No, there hasn't been a you know right. study that would definitively prove that. Mm -hmm. I want to back up a little bit and talk about COVID and, and our American health insurance in general. And, and that start by asking for those, you know, for the vast majority of Americans who are on their employer, uh, employer insurance, how has um, the major insurance companies treated um, COVID when it comes to claims processing or getting vaccinations or tests? Well, so, you know, in the beginning, there was a lot of federal payment for, um, you know, for COVID testing and COVID vaccine and COVID treatment, et cetera. But now, um, if you either want to get vaccinated from COVID or you get COVID and you have to, you need some sort of treatment, oral medication, et cetera, all that's covered. It, it is mm -hmm. a, you know, it is an illness or a disease just like anything else. So it'll be covered under your insurance. There's no exclusion because it's COVID. Um, and so, the, you know, the insurers know that they're paying for that like they would pay for, you know, a whooping cough vaccine or treatment of another type of virus. So let's compare that now, because the, the, this is some of the analysis that was done in this um, in Kaiser Family Foundation report about how insurance companies are going to cover um, things with long COVID. And one of the questions that they raised was, will long COVID be classified as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, making it qualify for disability payments? Um, and, and things like that for when people have to leave the workforce because of long COVID. What do you think about having long COVID uh, being classified as a disability and then covered as such? Well, I, you know, I think if we determine that long COVID, uh, as more data comes in, long COVID can be permanent and can be a significant um, barrier to, let's say, working. Um, then I think it's going to fit the definition of a disability of the Americans with Disability Act and be covered as such. You know, it, once you sort of clear that hurdle to say, um, you know, this condition is keeping somebody from working and it, it is a long-term or permanent condition, it, in that respect, then it, it, it's almost no different than somebody who has a stroke. Um, mm -hmm. And they say, well, look, there's a loss of cognitive ability here to where they can't function. It'll be covered as under the Americans with Disability Act. It, we need a little bit more data for it to be able to clear those right. hurdles. But I think that's highly likely that at least some amount of it um, will be covered under that. Keeping in mind that there's about 10 to 35 million working age adults estimated who, who may have long COVID. How much do you think that would cost? Um, either through disability insurance or through um, classifying something as a disability and, and making um, uh, patients eligible under under 
for federal aid, either through Medicaid or through the ACA marketplace. Um, how much is that going to cost if we classify long COVID as disability? Well, I, I think it really is going to come down to how many of those people would clear the hurdle. You know, mm -hmm. for example, and, and that hurdle is likely to be something that has to be quantified. You know, if I say, hey, I had COVID and I'm, I'm kind of tired. But it's not something that can be really classified. I, I, I don't have a loss of, of cognitive function. I just, I'm saying that I'm, I'm kind of tired. Right. Well, that might be hard to meet the disability requirement. I'm not saying the person isn't feeling that way. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. you know, that might be hard. Now, if on the other hand, we determine that, yeah, it's, you know, the vast majority of these 35 million people have some quantifiable reduction in their ability to work such that they can't work, that's going to be very expensive. Um, we don't know yet within that. We don't even really have a, a perfect number that it's somewhere between 10 and 35 million. And then how many of them would clear that hurdle? So mm -hmm. if it's, you know, 1 million people, you know, that's in, in the grand scheme of things, not that expensive. If it's 30 million people, yeah, that's huge. Right. Real quick, while we're on the topic of COVID, uh, I just want to get your thoughts on um, the, the federal government toying around with the idea of making COVID vaccinations an annual thing similar to how we do influenza vaccinations. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think there's, you know, there's really two different discussions there. Um, I fully believe that we will have a COVID vaccine that will feel like the flu vaccine that will be an annualized vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that will, that we're headed down that path and it doesn't seem to me to be a illogical thing to do as much as the virus is continuing to um, to mutate. Um, now, the question for me is, and I'll tell you how I think this is likely to come out, sure. is, is that going to be a vaccine that they're going to try to push for everybody? Or is it going to be a vaccine where they're going to say, hey, it's optional, and you need to talk to your doctor about what your risk profile is. So yeah, I can remember many, many years ago, um, when I was in my 20s and bulletproof, and, you know, my doctor says, hey, do you want the flu vaccine? No, nah, I don't want the flu vaccine. I can survive the flu. Give me a break. I'm not having that thing stuck mm -hmm. in my arm. Okay. And my doctor didn't argue with me. I was 25 years old and the likelihood of me dying from the flu was less than winning the lottery. Right. Now, I will tell you that the last time I went to my doctor, now that I'm well beyond the age of 50, the nurse came in and said, you know, um, we're doing the flu vaccine today. And I looked at her and was about to say something. And she said, that wasn't a question. Okay. And, and granted, I could have said no to it, but what my doctor was saying to me is, Hey, Ron, you know, you're getting to the point where you should probably right. start getting this on an annual basis. So if it's an optional vaccine and it's an individual patient choice with the doctor saying, you know, for your situation, given your medical condition, I would either recommend it or don't worry about it. I think that's fine. I think was, and I think that's likely the way we're headed. I don't mm -hmm. think we're going to be headed down the path of, that we were when this first broke on the scene where it was like everybody needs to get this right um or employers saying you know other than maybe healthcare employers who do it with the flu vaccine um you know if you don't get it you can't come to work right. and the reason for that is the, the virus is mutating to the point where it's no longer nearly as severe as it was when it first started right and i was in um dc back in january and at the time in january they were requiring you know proof of vaccination to yeah. to sit in a restaurant I, I did have to laugh because to go we went to a coffee shop and it was um if you wanted to sit in the coffee shop you had to show your vaccination if you were going to get if you were going to walk in and get it to go you didn't but anyway at the time they were for the mrna vaccines they required two shots to be considered fully vaccinated one shot for johnson and johnson right 
And there was talk at the time that they were going to expand the definition of fully vaccinated to include booster shots. And I would imagine that given that I don't believe there's anywhere in the U.S. that has a vaccine requirement anymore as blanket as we had earlier this year. Um, I think I, I doubt that they're going to start expanding fully vaccinated to me and getting a booster shot every year. Exactly like what you said. Yeah, the only the only place where I see it potentially happening and it. And it makes sense is healthcare delivery facilities, hospitals, doctor's offices. I mean, you know, the doctor's offices I go and still require a mask for everybody walking in. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a place where, you know, people are coming in that have compromised, you know, healthcare status. Mm -hmm. And people want to forget that for a long time, hospitals have been requiring employees to get a regular flu vaccine and other forms of vaccination is, is because of the population they serve. So I think there will probably happen. I mean, you know, you, you talk about the thing happened in DC, you know, several weeks ago, I traveled to Europe and we were in England and, you know, we were taking the train to go to Paris for the day and, and we had to show vaccination status or mm-hmm. a negative test. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and it was fully vaccinated was if you had two that were less than a certain amount of time, a certain amount of time you're fully vaccinated, or if it was more than that, you had to have a booster. Well, the funny thing for me was, so, you know, I showed my card and they were like, hey, great, you're good. We get on the train, we go into Paris. Um, we go to the Louvre with what felt like 4 million other people, nobody wearing a mask. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, a lot of these people are French citizens. I don't know whether they're vaccinated or not. I just found it hilarious that, oh, to get on the train, I got to show that I'm fully vaccinated, but you're happy to help me mill around in an enclosed space for long periods of time with a huge number of other people when it was very warm. Um, at some point, there's got to be some balancing of, mm-hmm. you know, are we really going to require these things anymore? If, like you say, if you can walk in, get a coffee and leave, well, I'm still potentially spreading germs. What's the point? You know, and right. we're still getting there. We're figuring that out as we go. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, I remember early on, um, cause I traveled to Canada earlier this summer and, and early on Canada was requiring that you submit like your quarantine plan ahead of time. If you test mm-hmm. positive in Canada, where are you going to stay? Right. You know, that, that sort of stuff. And, by the time that I had ended up going, they just wanted to see that you were vaccinated before they let you in the country, which, you know, to exactly to that point, it almost defeats the purpose to say, right. hey, you know, we're going to show that we're vaccinated, but then it doesn't really matter if we get COVID in the country or not, because yeah. they're not going to check us coming back to the U.S. anyway. Right, right, so. exactly. We'll make sure that we have this Kaiser Family uh, Foundation analysis in the show notes for this episode of the Flatlining Podcast. You can find it uh, in the description for the show or at flatlining.net. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. The next topic we wanted to talk about today has to do with the court system and with a recent ruling down in Texas. And uh, we'll have two articles that we'll share for this one as well, one from Kaiser Health News and the other is an opinion piece uh, from The Hill. Uh, Judge Reed O'Connor for the U.S. District Court of Northern District of Texas uh, ruled that one way that preventative services 
are selected for no-cost coverage under the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. Uh, another portion of his ruling says it violates a requirement that an HIV prevention drug therapy be covered without any cost to patients, violates religious freedom of an employer who is in a plaintiff in the case. And so it raises the question that we want to discuss today is how are preventative care, um, how, how is preventative care decided and determined for what is going to be cost free to the patient? And what point do your does the employer's rights trump the patient's rights or the employees and vice versa? And so, Ron, I guess I wanted to get your initial reaction because Judge Reed O'Connor has had a history of dealing with the Affordable Care Act, uh, including at one point declaring it unconstitutional, which ended up getting overturned by the Supreme Court. So I guess I w- I'm curious what your initial thoughts are on um, Judge O'Connor and, and the Affordable Care Act in general. Yeah, well, like, like you said, I mean, this clearly was a uh, a plaintiff searching for a sympathetic judge and they found it you know Mm -hmm. and and every plaintiff does it so it's not like i mean this is not like oh my god they they tried to pick the right judge of course everybody does that but you know realizing that you know previous rulings from justice they went before judge o'connor and 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 got the ruling or at least the indication that they were looking for which is that um the government can't mandate free coverage of preventative services. And as you pointed out, Judge O'Connor said for two reasons. One, and there are three different ways that um, something can be um, nominated or placed as a preventative service at zero cost, meaning the patient doesn't have to pay copay or coinsurance. Yeah. One is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is a non-governmental advisory panel with volunteer experts. And they are experts. I mean, this is a, this mm-hmm. is a pretty broad panel. Um, the others are the advisory committee on immunization practices. And then, um, there's a third one. That's also, a, a another that typically deals with children stuff anyways. So judge O'Connor basically said that the U S preventive services task force, that their recommendation could not be used because in essence, that these are actually federal agents, if you will. They're mm-hmm. acting on the behalf of the federal government, therefore they're federal agents, and that their recommendations can't be considered that's unlawful because as federal agents, they should be nominated by the president and approved by Congress. And they don't. They're volunteers on this task right. force. Um, and then in the second part of the indication, um, the judge said, and there are certain parts of these preventative services, namely um, preventative drugs for HIV that violate somebody's religious freedom because mm-hmm. they promote um, the idea of homosexual behavior and, and um, you know, sexual acts outside the marriage of a man, a woman, et cetera. Sure. So mm-hmm. the judge is kind of telegraphing that I'm going to, I'm going to say this can't be done for two reasons uh, and layered the, the two reasons. Um, now, what we don't know yet is, because um, the judge hasn't come out with their, with a formal ruling, is, is the judge going to say, well, I'm ruling in favor of just this plaintiff, or I'm ruling in favor of everybody who lives in the state of Texas, or like the previous Affordable Care Act ruling, or because it's a federal judge could say this is for the whole country. These things just can't happen this way. Um, we're yet to be seeing that. And, and in all likelihood, um, that will be immediately appealed in an appellant court, and in all likelihood, any sort of ruling will be stayed until the whole appellant process happens. So it's not like tomorrow somebody's not going to be able to get their 
you know, their HIV preventative medication right. and have it paid for, this is going to go through the court system, just like the Affordable Care Act ruling happened. Oh, and that was going to be my, my next question was, how quickly is this going to get argued up to the Supreme Court? Um, it, well, nothing, you know, nothing like this gets to the Supreme Court like in a week. I mean, so this is going to True. take a while. Yes, First of absolutely. all, it's going to go to an appellate court. The Supreme Court could pick it before the appellate court, but they're unlikely to do that. They'll let it go to the appellate court. So, you know, this is at least a year before this gets finalized. And so in the meantime, it'll just stay as it is until this gets decided one way or another. But it does present sort of an interesting um, challenge to the combination of you know, religious freedom and separation of state and church and how much authority does the federal government have to do, uh, how much does authority does the federal government have to make mandates like this mm -hmm. and how big of a window are we going to create for the concept of religious freedom? Um, for example, you know, let's say I am the owner of a, um, of a, large employer group. So I face the penalty if I don't provide health insurance for my employees. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I say, well, you know what? I own this company. It's a for-profit company, but I'm the sole owner of it. Um, we, we have more than 50 employees. So I'm, I'm governed by the mandate to provide coverage or pay a penalty, a tax, if you will. But I'm a Christian scientist and, mm -hmm. and I don't believe in um, healthcare the way that you're talking about it here. I shouldn't have to pay for any of this because my religious beliefs are that that's unnecessary. Okay. And I'm, and I'm not throwing stones at the Christian science rule. I'm, I'm picking a, right. and I can it's pick an, an example. example. I can pick an example on a number of things. I could pick an example of somebody who owns a business and, and is a Christian and says, I don't want to have to pay for, um, or be bound by the family medical leave provisions for paternity mm -hmm. leave unless the two individuals are married and married right. in a church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can, you can pick a lot of different examples of things the government have said you have to do that I could make an argument violates my personal religious freedom. And so then we get into, okay, well, you know, where do we sit on this? And I think that's the big, the big question here is if this goes through and, and these things are, and it's upheld in the Supreme Court, how big of a window does that drive for everything from Family Medical Leave Act? You can make potential in certain religions, religious arguments against the, you know, the, uh, the uh, right of a female to be paid an equal wage for equal work um, in female and women's rights. You can make it for Family Medical Leave Act. You, there's a number of things that you could start to drive through that window. And that's why it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Right. And, and I want to make sure that we're clear that we're talking right now about for-profit um, businesses and corporations because there's a separate supreme court ruling little sisters of the poor v pennsylvania yeah. and, and trump v pennsylvania which deals specifically with nonprofits, particularly mm -hmm. religious nonprofits mm -hmm. that are designated as such by the the irs and those fall under a different category and we want to yes. make sure that we're talking who don't necessarily have to follow equal equal opportunity employment commission rules because they are religious nonprofits. For for-profit companies that do have to follow those um, EEO rules, there's this is where this interesting debate is getting into. With you, you know, you can't discriminate against people for employment. Now we're talking about can you discriminate regarding what kind of healthcare is going to be covered? And and that and I'm glad you made that distinction because and, and I'm just speaking personally now. Um, personally, I felt that was a nice balance. 
you know, and, and by balance, I mean this whole separation of church and state and wanting to protect religious freedom while at the same time not giving it, you know, carte blanche to say I can do whatever I want to. People, the, the, the companies you're talking about or the organizations you're talking about that are nonprofit religious you know, they've been, they've gone through the hoops where the IRS has said, yeah, you are a church or you are a, you know, a, a nonprofit religious organization. And you're right. Those cases basically said, well, no, that's different. Then we're stepping over a line with the government mandating to them in, an, in a whole organization that's purely in this arena, whether it's Hobby Lobby or if I own a, you know, um, a series of car dealerships. Mm -hmm. um, when we get into the for-profit sector, that's a whole different animal and they do get treated differently and personally and again I, people could disagree with me I, I i like that balance i don't want mm -hmm. the government mandating to religious organizations things that are clearly against their whole purpose but i get concerned about people being able to opt out of things like family medical leave act or equal pay or any of the equal right. opportunity rules or even the healthcare mandate purely because the owner um has a religious objection to it and that's what came about in the Hobby Lobby case, um, mm -hmm. with which was one of the first ones regarding this in the in the Affordable Care Act. And because of that, um, both two opinionists over at the Hill, whose names are, uh, excuse me, it's one opinionist, Andrew uh, Koppelman over at the Hill, uh, wrote yesterday or wrote on Sunday rather um, about this case and how it is based off of the um, the. Hobby Lobby case from 2014, and a, and he he points to a specific sentence in Justice Alito's opinion um, that seemed to say that a business can deny a particular service if it doesn't present a burden to the federal government to create a program to cover it instead. Um, obviously, Justice Ginsburg at the time um, disagreed with that. I, I believe Justice Anthony Kennedy also was a little bit skeptical of that as well. What do we know about the Hobby Lobby case and how that um, has changed the way healthcare and really the Affordable Care Act uh, has worked uh, in the past, you know, five or ten years? Yeah, well, the, the Hobby Lobby case is, to me, an example of, um, especially at the Supreme Court level, and and, the, and I think they are. They're they're you know these are thoughtful people that are um, you know careful about what they're doing, and I think they understand the gravity of what they're doing. But it points out that you know. One case, one sentence in one case, you know, can be used in the future in a way that was sort of unintended in the original case. So, you know, you're right. I mean, Alito basically said that, um, you know, well, if you don't like this coverage not being by the most straightforward way of doing it is to have the government assume the cost of providing it. Um, and, and, you know, Kennedy was like, ah, I don't really like that. But for the Hobby Lobby case, because it was really about contraceptives, right? You know, Kennedy yeah. point sort of said, well, I don't really like your your premise there. But in this case, you know, there are an abundance of places where women can go and really get free contraception mm -hmm. um, outside of it. So he, he did say, well, you're right. It doesn't really place a burden on the government in this situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't necessarily like your premise, okay? Well, and obviously Ginsburg, going the other end of Alito, said, you know, well, where does this stop? You know, once you open this door, where does this end? I mean, is it, what do you do with, you know, equal pay for equal job? What do you do with the family medically? What do you, you know? And, and so she was pointing out, this is a scary door to open because we may not be able to close it. And I think that's what people are worried about with this case and using, you know, Alito's position is, you know, what happens if that becomes the, the 
rationale for anything. You know, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to pay for this. Just have the government pay for it. Um, and, and it opens up. I think it's, I think Kennedy was right. In the case of Hobby Lobby, it really didn't cost the government anything because there were other programs that were available. But, it, you know, this whole creating a precedent is a, is, is a thing you got to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's interesting about the, with that one being related to contraceptives because you had, um, it was the same thing with the, uh, Little Sisters of the Poor of Pennsylvania, because they were mm -hmm. arguing that they shouldn't have to cover contraceptives because, A, they weren't going to need them, and B, that it didn't work with their religious beliefs. Yeah. And that one being the nonprofit, ver essentially the nonprofit version of the Hobby Lobby case, and, and you could see the distinctions that were made there. And this one, you know, contraception is one of those things, but we're also talking mostly about um, preventative health care, which is, you know, mm -hmm. like we talked about before, is designated um, should be free under the Affordable Care Act. You mentioned that the three different um, advisory committees that help decide um, what preventative care is free or not. And for adults, there's about 22 different things, pretty wide ranging uh, things that are covered under this, um, you know, free for the patient kind of thing. You know, everything from aspirin use to prevent cardiovascular disease, cholesterol screening, cancer screening, various immunizations. Um, most of those are not, you know, controversial in any way. What we're talking about is the, the controversial things regarding um, STI prevention screening, HIV prevention screening. Um, why is it that, when did those ones get added and why wasn't there sort of a pushback on it at the time that they were added? Well, I think there's, um, I think you've got to understand the way that the, organization approaches this and how they determine if something should be included at no cost because um, they can you know they categorize things on a b c you know they sure on, mm -hmm. and really what they're looking at it from is a clinical perspective of is this something that um, relatively speaking is low cost compared to the disease or condition that it prevents okay um so you take the the HIV prevented medications. Okay, we, we know that somebody is in a um, uh, a higher risk environment. Let's say you know a, a homosexual um, relationship. Um, so they're in a higher risk environment. We know that the cost of providing this drug, which can prevent HIV transmission, um, is much less than the cost of treating people once they get HIV. Mm -hmm. And so it's really looking at well, what can we spend money on now? that is, has a payoff because it avoids much more expensive money. It's a very, I mean, the easiest one of the things, pediatric immunizations are that way, screening mammography is that way, let's catch the cancer early when the person can survive it and at much less expense than, than down the road. So they look at it from a purely clinical perspective. Now, I, I understand the people who look at it and go, I don't want to support that lifestyle. It's against my religious belief. And I, I sort of understand their their feelings around that. But it's difficult to argue that this is a cost-effective way to deal with this situation um, because the, the the drugs are much less expensive than, you know, than what would happen if you, mm -hmm. if you contract HIV or some of these other things. So I, I think at the time they didn't get pushback on it because um, it really wasn't something that, that people recognized and it was sort of in the fine print and it sort of happens you know in these in these very technical committee minutes etc and now that it's out there once it gets approved then people start to go wait a minute i have to pay for this drug i don't want to i don't want to support that 
that lifestyle, if you will. How many of these uh, preventative screening things are covered at no cost under Medicare? Um, well, many of I'm them don't. All of them. Yeah, many of them don't apply. I mean, pediatric immunizations are technically uh, sure. covered at no yeah. cost, but you mm-hmm. know, there aren't a whole lot of sixty-five-year-olds getting that. So, yeah, I mean, they, you know, Medicare covers these things at no cost. The Affordable Care Act basically made them also free um, for anybody getting sort of commercial insurance. You couldn't exclude them or put a cost to them that was. Um, you know, that was a hurdle to it because they, what they want to say is what we don't want to do is have somebody not get their screening mammogram or not get their preventative HIV medication or not get their XYZ, their colonoscopy because they can't afford the copay or the deductible because that seems to, for clinicians and medical economic, medical economists as a silly thing to do Mm -hmm. because, you know, that, that paying for that more than pays off in the future on this avoidance issue. Right. And, and the reason I asked about Medicare is that Medicare is funded primarily by our, our taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, for the, you, everyone has Medicare taken from their paycheck, uh, which is used to go into the pot. Of course, people write the employee. People employed right now are paying for the current people that are Medicare, and, and it, that's you can argue whether or not that's the right way to do it, but that's the way it's done. And my point being is that these are already covered by Medicare mm-hmm. under our taxes. We're already, Americans are already paying for these, whether mm-hmm. or not they like them. I mean, we pay for all kinds of things that I don't particularly think that we, that I don't particularly like that the American government does, but I can't itemize my tax return in a way right. that says, I'm going to pay for these things, but not these things with my tax dollars. Well, in a perfect example, people, you know, this, this concept of that's how societies work, that you know, that you, you're going to pay taxes in for a lot of things you may never use and know mm-hmm. you're not going to use. Um, but the problem is we can't tax just the user or else it becomes impossible. Perfect example is I pay property taxes. Now, part of those property taxes go for a public education for the school system. Now, mm-hmm. I happen to have kids and I utilize that school system. Mm-hmm. But what about the people who say, I'm, I don't have kids, I'm never going to have kids. Or the, you know, the, the 65-year-old couple who said, I've never had kids, I'm not going to have them now. Why do I pay into the school system I'm not going to use? Well, because the people who use the school system, if they're the only ones who pay in it, it's, it's too unaffordable. The whole concept of insurance, um, especially health insurance, when you realize that 5% of the people consume 50% of all the healthcare cost, that means that a majority of people paying into insurance, whether it's their employer paying it or they're paying it, mm-hmm. aren't getting a benefit from it. You know, they're not going to, in any one year, use as much as what their cost is. But that's how insurance works. You sort of all pay in so that one individual that has cancer that chews up $300,000, they could never afford it if it was just based on use. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same thing with taxes. You know, I, I'm with you. There, there are a lot of things like, God, I wish I didn't have to pay for a portion of that. I think that's silly. Um, or I'm never going to get the benefit of that. But that's how the whole system works. Yeah, and I, w- I will say to, to that point that, oh, that's silly. I, that's one reason why I read uh, Senator Ron, uh, Rand Paul's Festivus spending report every year uh, that he, he publishes. It's quite amusing when he, he, he calculates up what he sees as waste in the federal government and publishes a report every year on how much money we spend on, you know, researching wood for uses in the ocean in Arkansas or something like that. Um, how much of this, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. For this particular issue, one of the questions that's being raised is how is this going to affect down the line when we have things like um, public health emergencies, with things like mask mandates, um, COVID-19 vaccines, which there have already been um, some people who have had religious exemption, exceptions 
uh, to the COVID-19 vaccine because of its very remote connection to an abortion um, for a few of them. How is this decision going to affect um, vaccination and other preventative measures that aren't necessarily included um, under these ones that are required under the Affordable Care Act? Well, and, and I think that's the big concern is, um, you know, the original um, vaccination case was, I forget the name of like Jackson v. Massachusetts or something. And it's a long time ago. It's, it's smallpox. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there was an individual trying to say, I, I shouldn't have to do this for a number of reasons. And, and it was the Supreme Court said, no, you do for the greater good, because if, if we don't get enough people vaccinated from this horrible disease, people will die. Um, and so now there seems to be a bit of a swinging of pushback more towards whether you call it individual rights or freedoms or, um, you know, religious exemptions, et cetera. But the concept is still there as a society. You know, is there some things that we have to do for the good of everybody, if you will? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I saw that there are, you know, outbreaks of, um, oh, I'm trying to remember if it was measles or I think it was measles in New York mm-hmm. City. Right, yes. Um, which we thought we had eradicated. And it, they, you know, epidemiologists think that these outbreaks of measles are now because there's a number of kids who aren't getting vaccinated. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question of, I'm a big believer of individual rights, but then the question becomes, where, where does your individual right end? And does it end at the point where you're actually causing harm to someone else? Um, and I think these are a lot of these cases are what, um, you know, we're, we're waiting to see, does that shift? Um, mm-hmm. more towards the area of individual right. And if so, at, at what cost? Um, you know, I, I'm surprised personally that we haven't seen a case where somebody, um, you know, has a loved one who gets COVID um, and gets it because somebody didn't get vaccinated and then their family members sue that individual and say, you're culpable. You're, you were the patient, you know, you were the person who gave it to them. Mm-hmm. And so you're responsible for the. I'm surprised we haven't seen those cases yet because that's sort of the flip side of it. It's fine, if you've got individual freedoms, then I should be able to, you know, um, you should be held responsible for the choices you individually made if they impacted others. And we have all sorts of of common good things that we don't even think about every day Mm -hmm. for everything, you know, speed limits to Mm -hmm. traffic lights, for example, Mm -hmm. are are common good, you know, regulations we have an effect that yeah they they inhibit your individual individual right to go 120 down i-75 but at the same time they're protecting other people who don't want to go 120 and don't want to be killed while they're driving home right well we have we have we have regulations that aren't even protecting others around you that are that are protecting individuals you know the Mm -hmm. helmet laws for people riding a motorcycle i could argue that well Mm -hmm. wait a minute that's uh, you know why, why shouldn't I be able to not wear a helmet? It's only impacting me. It's not like me getting an accident without a helmet is going to suddenly kill somebody else. Um, Seatbelts and airbags and things mm-hmm. like that are, yep. you know, you'd say. And, and so we've even got them where it's not even, you know, protecting others, but protecting you from yourself, so to speak. And if you're not in the state of Michigan, auto inspections as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how much of this... Do you think, especially given Judge O'Connor's history, and I don't want to question the motives of this particular plaintiff, but Judge O'Connor has had a lot of dealings with the Affordable Care Act with a lot of different plaintiffs. How much of this, in this case, 
do you think is a an attempt to have the Affordable Care Act overturned, despite the fact that the Supreme Court has upheld it, it's upheld the um, it's, it's upheld various pieces of it, and it's upheld the over the act overall. How much of this is an attempt to have a lot of those things taken away so that it is effectively useless? Well, I, you know, clearly from previous rulings, um, Justice O'Connor doesn't agree with the, the Affordable Care Act. Um, mm -hmm. They found it unconstitutional. Um, and so I think part of it is, you know, wanting to chip away at the Affordable Care Act. I think part of it is, you know, and, and I'm not I'm not casting dispersions on this judge, as a judge who has a, a belief more toward the area of individual freedoms and, and religious freedoms. Um, you know, in, in other rulings as well. Um, to me, the interesting thing will be a couple of things. First of all, remember when the Texas ruling, when this judge's ruling got to the Supreme Court about the Affordable Care Act, and basically the premise there was that the penalty violated the Commerce Clause, the mm -hmm. Individual Mandate Violence Commerce Clause. Yep. Remember that, first of all, there were parts of that that um, the Supreme Court did say was unconstitutional, like Medicaid expansion. They said, you can't force the states to do that. The government doesn't right. have the ability to spend state money without states' permission. But also remember that what Justice Robert came out in that decision was that, yes, it did violate the Commerce Clause, but it really wasn't a penalty. It was a tax. And so in some respects, the Supreme Court and Justice Robert agreed that the individual mandate violated the Commerce Clause, but then he said it's still legal because it's really not a mandate, it's a tax, and the federal government can employ a tax. Um, and then said, and it's even if it were legal, it was severable. So that was a very narrow, it wasn't like this was a slam dunk or you're crazy. It was, yeah, you got a point, but we're still going to leave it because of this other way that we can get there. The other thing to remember is that was a very different court, you know, Mm -hmm. The court makeup today has, uh, you know, a number of new justices and is clearly much more conservative leaning. So I don't know whether this court would have the same ruling on these situations, on this ruling, that the previous court would. And that's what happens with the court. It's a it's a changing thing. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. I, I I won't be surprised if it's a 5-4 ruling either way. Either no, you're mm -hmm. wrong. This is fine, or it won't surprise me if part or some of the, or all of the arguments that that they make this this court upholds. Right. Well, we'll have both of these uh, articles, one from the Kaiser Health News and the opinion piece from the Hill, posted in the show notes for this episode. Ron, that's about all the time we have for today. So thank you very much for joining us again. We hope to talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Thank you as always. Finally today, a recent study published in the American Journal of Medical Care has come to the conclusion that the No Surprises Act could result in 3.5 million more emergency room visits. The study was conducted by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and looked at ER visit numbers for 15 states that included bans on surprise billing between 2007 and 2018 and 16 states that had no such bans. 
They found that average emergency room spending was 14% lower in states with the bans compared to those without, but that the number of ER visits was also 3% higher in those states. The authors of the study did admit that the results are not nationally representative and that they only observed allowed spending, not billed charges. Also, their results hold true for HMO plans, but not necessarily for PPO plans, because not all state surprise billing bans apply to PPOs. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.